Hello. Um, I've recorded this bit about four days after the the actual the, the main bulk of this podcast. Um, as I, I haven't listened back to the podcast, which I have to do to so I can extract the best parts to help promote this episode. Uh, the I literally only came up with one bit for this one, and it's me talking about uh, someone scoffing their own shite. So, so that, 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 that lets you know what you're in for. But uh, there's bits where I talk um, about, uh, about people, about mental health and people with Down syndrome and people who've got learning difficulties and stuff like that, which I, I, I light upon quite often in this podcast, especially as I'm writing a book about dementia and, and elderly care and stuff like that. And it's, uh, it, 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 it's tonally, it reflects the two different parts of my personality, which is one is a person who is compassionate, I think, you know, ultimately quite compassionate and works. In, it's not for the fucking money. I don't work in care work for the fucking money. Let me, let me tell you that. I do it because I love the work. I find it very rewarding. Uh, becoming enmeshed in these people's lives and becoming an extension of their families and then there's there's, there's the other part which is uh there's a sort of a, a, a sado trickster part of someone who will who will mock myself as much as others in a very flippant blase way um i think in in the podcast i do I do start to uh, analyse some of the stuff I said in the course of the podcast and and reflect on my, my own cruelty. I'm prone to cruelty as well as much as anyone else. Uh, but I don't know if I I don't know if I, I mean you you can be the judge of that. I don't know if I if the balance was right. I don't know if the balance was right. So I just wanted to say first of all, and this is uh, verbatim, basically word for word, what I said in defense of the the have a word uh, uh podcast when they uh, when they were um they they got a bit of you know caught, caught a bit of flack from uh from people who had you know le- le- legitimate grievances and concerns but uh and their listenership's a, a lot 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 bigger than mine i don't have to worry about there being much of a fallout but in the same way um when you do a podcast and it's been well received, you know you've cultivated a fan base that are usually very loyal and tune into every episode. And I, I know uh, some of you are that, and I, I appreciate it really, really do. And you know the the ones who pay for the extra content and stuff as well. And it's like a it's like a massive circle of close mates of that. That's how you conceptualize it in your head. And the reason we speak in such an unguarded way with our mates is because there's an implicit trust that what's being said isn't motivated by hate but with podcasts there's a weird blurring of private and public spheres and it can feel as if you're talking within the safety and security of the private realm or a room full of confidants but sometimes you forget it's a public broadcast and with a casual listener the trust isn't there and that's when you have the potential to inadvertently hurt people. But especially during the cabin fever of lockdown, it's easy to get caught up and forget it's uh, it's public. 
Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I've, uh, I, I, I mean, the, the, the conversational rhythms and the the, the unguarded way of, of speaking is what is what makes the, the podcast format makes it a format that becomes so deeply embedded in your life, and you listen to certain podcasts with regularity. But yeah, I do use the word just heads up. I do use the word. Uh, spastic and it is a word I'll sometimes throw around in private context with my friends but it's not in my mind the same way I'll use man as a, as a non-gendered term like you're right man like I don't use spastic but but the difference is yeah I can't it's not for me to say I can't extract it from its historical weight so that's a bit of a cop out, really. I can't extract the word spastic from its historical weight, and uh, for a lot of people, it it's it's fanged. It bites them, and when it's put forward, uh, it, it it has the potential to harm. So, I just wanted to say, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for using it. I'm sorry for using it, and. I'm probably still going to use it in private context because no one's there then. No one knows. But for every, for everyone else out there, I I will never use it again. No, I'm only joking. I won't. Uh, I, I try it. Language changes and evolves all the time. And uh, there are certain words that I wouldn't use in a private in a private context. I wouldn't use I wouldn't use the N word in a private context. So, uh, I, yeah, I'll I'll. I'll I'll take that out of my vocabulary as well. The the S word, the S word, and I'll read a little bit here just for the responsibility for the vulnerable. Uh, so I have a, a right. This is a great book by Erin C. Gilson. Some notion of vulnerability is generally assumed in our everyday discussions of ethical dilemmas, as well as by theoretical and philosophical treatment of questions of ethical and political relevance. Vulnerability is presumed to be a common feature of the human condition, a basic susceptibility that all possess. As such, an idea of vulnerability underlies our notions of harm and well-being. So they're the two sides as well. Like I have a side of me that it, it can harm people, of course, like, like verbally uh, and physically if I felt so inclined. Like I said in an interview before that, I, I still don't know why I said it. So I'm a massive animal lover and me save worms. But uh, I said I would love my dog to be able to process um, pain as pleasure so I could boot him around the room until he comes. Don't know why I said it. Don't know. But yeah, oh, sorry, that's the dog. So, uh, so yeah, we've all, we, 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 will, we all have the potential to harm and then also to think about what's in people's best interests and to help promote their independent rights equality and duties and obligations we have all these things and the central concept of ethical political and social theories rest upon the simple facts that we can be affected by those others with whom we share our world that is that we are vulnerable to one another and to the hazards of our environment and I, I again, it's from upbringing like when I, when I got blood taken from me when I was young and I bad like a sheep what's it called bleated like a sheep um my uh 
my mum, I was, oh, stop bleating. Just, it's fine. It's a needle. She's a nurse, a very compassionate woman. <laughs> she has a low tolerance for uh, people making a big fuss of, uh, of stuff. Take your lumps. Swallow your lumps. Get on with it. So I've I've been conditioned to have the the, the same mindset and think like I couldn't be truly truly harmed by what anyone says to me, and maybe that's a privilege uh, to, to to my density as a, 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 a straight white male, straightish. You know, we were all. We're all like Phil Ellis said in his show, like we're all fucking bisexual. You boring cunt, <laughs> you boring cunts. Uh, he's like, we probably are, but anyway. So yeah, I, 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 I assume, I assume that uh, that that other people will be equally conditioned to to just barrel through any kind of negative stuff to sit about them or any kind of criticism have a moment to feel hurt and then get on with it. But that isn't always the case and you shouldn't expect that of other people. You're allowed to have your feelings. And to put the point simply, it is only because one is vulnerable that one can be harmed or benefited. The institution of rights, for instance, protects one's interests insofar as one is a vulnerable party and the deprivation of these rights heightens one's vulnerability. Correspondingly, the pursuit of an ideal like equality can remedy injustice, which can be understood as the unjust distribution of vulnerability. Likewise, positive and negative ethical obligations, which demands that we refrain from harming others and act so as to aid them, derive from the basic fact that we are vulnerable creatures, even Kant's, even cunts, uh, even uh, even uh, Emmanuel Kant, Emmanuel Kant, Emmanuel Kant, Emmanuel Kant, Kant's justification for the duty of beneficence makes reference to the simple truth that we need one another and our mode of existence is such that we cannot but call upon others to offer support. It is apparent, therefore, that normative projects typically involving minimising vulnerability and protecting those who are vulnerable through the establishment of legal rights and political institutions, the performance of ethical obligations and the pursuit of social and ethical ideals. And yeah, I think I've got an ethical obligation not to use the word, the yes word, at all really, and especially not to use it in a way that may come across as, as as a bit flippant. So yeah, they just recorded this extra little bit a couple of days after the fact, after the, the recording the bulk of this episode, uh, to apologise as well. To apologise because I should know better. I work in care. And there is something about working in care as well, is that it's this the 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 enforced emotion uh, emotions of of care that you're right. I'll I'll get into that a little bit actually. We've got time. So let me just. So we have to uh, within care work. You have to 
come into work with a, a kind of laboured smile on your face. You always have to kind of convey a certain amount of positivity, which I don't, but I think shit, like the positive reinforcement, it's like as well, they they they, they, they pull the shutters down on some of the elder people's emotions because the elder people go, I want to die. And then we're told, you know, to say, like, no, you don't, no, you don't, no, you don't, you're lying. <laughs> One thing I can't tolerate is liars, and you are lying. Shut up, you bad liar. No, we're supposed to say, uh, no, 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 you know, re-divert that, uh, the, the, what they're feeling, or, or you know, just not try and make everything positive all the time. And I think, no, bollocks, let them experience the full spectrum of, of, of human emotion. Like, why are you trying to purify their emotional scape? And the same for carers. Same for carers. And actually, I've sort of apologised for using certain words. I've used them now. Like, it's out there. I could have taken them out of the episode, but I would have still have said, but then they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't have been able to harm it yet. You know, I see what I've done wrong here. By keeping it in, that's when it could have harmed someone. Otherwise, I'm just speaking to myself, and I'm fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've fucked it. I've ruined it. I've, I've uh, I mean, I've been tormented by it for the past four days, and uh, I, I should. I mean, I've still got time. I could just delete the episode, but but I feel like I can't now because the numbers are quite high on this one. A lot of people are listened in. I don't. I don't want to sacrifice them, so I'm, I'm prioritizing these arbitrary metrics over people's feelings. But, it's better to be upfront about that, isn't it? Then, like my mum says, like transparency and being upfront about something doesn't uh, doesn't what's the word I'm looking for? Absolve you. She didn't use that word. She can't speak or read. <laughs> she she doesn't absolve you just by admitting to the bad thing. Uh, doesn't it's not a, uh, automatic absolution. Get to, um, or spoken a little. Oh yeah. So, according to the protagonist in Sicarius Licta, which is a book, it's a bit of a weird book by a Romanian writer. Uh, old people are on intimate terms with both life and death. Their possessions diminish together with their aptitude for possession and sometimes disappear, melting away like vapour into the air. Little by little, old people, old age impoverishes them. Even if some still seem wealthy, they all face the pure, naked and ineffable obliteration of being. And so I actually, I like to think of it as a reconfigured consciousness rather than an obliteration. Now, this may be wishful thinking. It depends what my own brain is doing during any given hour. Whether I'm leaning towards, this isn't just a drawn out cessation. There's still a chance to live or flops over to, oh, what's the fucking point? Mavis thought I was a guinea pig this morning. The broken care sector and all the accompanying problems caused by the neoliberal model of financial extraction can place an expiration date on good intentions. You get worn out. It kind of erodes the uh the, the the sympathy you know you have this you have you get sympathy fatigue 
it's not that you've got a, a, a sympathy or em- empathy deficit. It's that you you just get fatigued. You get fatigued by it. Um, it's uh, actually I might do this one. This episode as like a companion one to the one that's just been put out instead of adding it on. So I think the shorter episodes, I set you know, it's it's, it's it's better. So yeah, I'll do this as a companion one. Actually, this was going to be at the beginning of the bang on about Frankie Boyle episode, but now it's going to be its own thing. So we've gone on a bit. So yeah, all the accompanying problems caused by the neoliberal model of financial extraction can place an expiration date on good intentions, plus the synthetic amiability carers are encouraged to adopt in this line of work tends to ebb away throughout a long shift. This is when those red flag thoughts start to occur. Like using the word the S word. Well thoughts like, should I should I punch Jill in the face? I'll give you an example of so this is again this like with a lot of people in this book, it's not 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 an exact not an exact representation of a of a real existing person. And the person who this is sort of based on, kind of partially based on, is dead anyway. So and as some people have said to me, you uh you cannot um you cannot libel the dead. So that's one of the upsides of talking about elderly care in a book. Jill is a resident with a large open face and a sweet nature, though her apprehension makes her jumpy and prone to neediness and self-pity. She's part of a loose clique of women that includes Gypsy Mary, who's a gypsy and fucking hilarious, really big infectious laugh, looked like she's uh, dyed her hair with an ink cartridge. She loves Elvis Presley. Always talking about Teeter. Proper, like, teeter-picking kind of gypsy, uh, uh, rustic, and uh, agrarian, old-school gypsy, rather than Dolce and Cabana gypsies. You know, you get quite dressed up and stylish. Which is actually offensive. It's like, why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be? Because they're ro- they're roaming, they're peripatetic, but that's a lifestyle choice. It's not because they're homeless or they're home. I mean, they've got homes, but they're not. They're houseless. <laughs> they're houseless by choice. So it's not like they're uh, they're they're poor. As with, mo- as with most uh, relationships between residents, it isn't immediately apparent what unites them or what individual needs they are servicing by gravitating towards each other. Because Jill is partially deaf and gloms onto other residents, they can find her dependence alienating. Whenever you're in close proximity, she'll beam at you, searching for a hint of validation and reassurance. And so she... So she said to me, like, you're, you're, you're talking to all of them, she says, pouting, signalling to the ladies. I just helped in, in, into their armchairs within the, the, the context of this chapter. But you're purposely ignoring me. Ah, oh, of course not, Jill, I boom, spreading my arms widely, an exaggerated show of affection. I'd never ignore you, dear. You are, you're ignoring me. All the others get your attention, but you always leave me out. 
Some of this is due to her hearing problems and feeling marooned on an island of muffled, barely audible noise. So this next bit is a good reflection of the the, 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 the dichotomy of uh, empathy, empathetic self, and then the arsehole in me. So I, I try to understand she's deaf, feels like she's marooned, partially deaf, on an island of muffled, barely audible sound. Might be, might be a part, part of the reason why she's a bit clingy. I try to exercise my innate empathy and tap into the sense of separation she must be experiencing. But carers are only human. We get tired. It always happens to me, doesn't it? You don't care about me, do you? She continues. For a split second, I think I'd really love to punch Jill in a large open face. But I mustn't. And I wouldn't. And as quickly as the thought arrives, it's instantly expelled. As Merv Emery, in an article entitled The Politics of Feeling, uh, writes, since most service work cannot be made more efficient with machines, the productivity of emotional labour can be increased only by encouraging workers to cultivate displays of emotion that are more convincing, both to others and to themselves. The more, experience, the more we experience emotional labour as a feigned display rather than a true feeling, she continues, the greater our psychological angst. So refreshing these false emotions and being told to extinguish any feelings that catch a light in the private realm of the self, at least those that don't conform with social and corporate interests, and doing this while walking along the same Lemniska pathway. A Lemniska is that, it's like an eight that's been turned on its side. And it's the figure that symbolises eternity. And actually knew a guy called Len who uh who who said he needs to be recycled it's quite a nice thought like he just sort of said it once when I was just popping in on him mate Len is a what a character he's not someone I've cared for in a care home he owns like his this his house is mad he started off as a bungalow he's the kind of the the, the worst worst person at DIY and he's kind of added all these bits to his house that are like basically like like the roof is like loads of doors nailed together <laughs> and they're like piping going through like these rooms are like just it's just like imagine if you crawled into a skip or crawled into like a garbage uh, a mound of garbage and within the garbage, you found a a, 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 a kind of cavern, like a, a cave. You found this cavity, like this hole where none of the garbage had collapsed in on itself. So it's like a hole that you can sit in, but surrounded by garbage. That's basically what his entire house is. Dodgy landlord, though. Rent them out, man. Rent them out. And you should see these places. It is mad. It is fucking mad. I'd love to do a, uh... but they all seem like quite close knit. Like he's a very, 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 very old man, and the people who who live there, they all kind of like help each other out. I mean, they're people who have obviously run out of uh, options. I know there's been like a few sex workers and stuff in there, um... but yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great place to kind of just go and visit. It's, it's, it's absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of bonkers. 
I'd love to do a. I mean, you. This is sounds really wanky, but I would love. I would love to take photographs of it. I've never seen a house like it. It's like it's just like like. Uh, honestly, like one room is just made out of doors. Um. So yeah, refreshing these false emotions, and so yeah, not not having it, not allowing the feelings to catch a light in the private realm of the self. At least those that conform with social and corporate interests. And doing this while walking along the Lemniscat pathway day in day out, the repetition can make you feel as if you've caught the dementia, like an airborne virus. Repetition writes. Martin Demont Fridrickson in an anthology of nothing in particular. An anthology of nothing in particular. We risk being stuck in particular forms of alignment. This may entail a bodily aspect in terms of bodies being shaped by certain repetitive tasks, but also aspects of perception and thinking in the sense that we stop noticing the regularity we are in and the fact that we may have begun to act and think along particular lines. We're all trapped in that though, aren't we? Lem- Lemniscuit pathway. The established rhythm of repetitive days, like a common part of care home institutionalisation, despite our repeated attempts to break away from it, much like the pernicious cycle of addiction in those years I spent slumped in bedrooms and public toilets, uh, residents cling to cutlery, hide away teddy bears and take other people's bags. They scavenge and accumulate. Like I did with um, a a comb and my jogging bottom leg. So when I was uh, high on 2CB, fun drug, fun, 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 fun drug, most fun I've ever had on a drug. But there was this one time I teared through the leg of my jogging bottoms trying to retrieve the comb in my pocket. It was in a nightclub. Uh, I was high on psychedelics on 2CB. It seemed like the most logical way of getting it. I left the nightclub toilet with one leg exposed, knobbly kneed and wiry, clutching the comb and the torn off jogging bottom leg. I didn't let go of them for the rest of the evening. I stood in the centre of the dance floor, holding them in each hand like a Morris dance with his tissues. Kind of just padding about, dancing, holding a, a jogging bottom leg leg and they uh and a comb do you remember those mornings like oh mate i in that book that's a chorus lictor book wait let me find it there it is it says um health has become a norm an ideal even an illness has totally lost its paradoxical value its capacity to express the natural and the lack of meaning of the natural the vast precious experience of illness and suffering, which in its own way, every religion of the world sought to keep and pass on, is dissipated and lost without a trace. But it's, it's hard to find spiritual at spirituality and the, the nourishment in those moments of social illness. So the, the drug used to break down, especially when it was times when um, we'd go back to a friend's bedroom with some fellow stragglers. We pass around a Gavin and Stacey season two DVD case wrapped with lines of ketamine as if it was a holy relic. And the, the others would be there for day. They'd sat that for days, like windows twitching and room contracting. 
I'd tough out for 24 hours, but then I'd have to bail. So I'm not a very social person. So I could get some sleep and have a shower and re-emerge into something wholesome, like buying a newspaper or trampolining. I used to do trampolining a lot. Oh, I tramped. I tramped. You know, with goss for you, um, I, uh, I, I tramped, trampolined with... Uh, with uh, the brilliant Daniel Berg from uh, Next Up and Lou Sanders in Ed, at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I accidentally gave uh, Lou a, a black eye when we did gladiator wrestling on the, on the, 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 the balance beam things. Uh, I accidentally hit it in the eye with, one, with my weapon. Sorry, Lou. That was really bad. It's really bad form. I didn't mean to. I, I, just, I, I just went... I think I got overexcited, and uh, so yeah, back back to these. Yeah, you know the, the, the constant tension between a slack, dishonoured life and one I can actually be proud of being slumped between slumped and dirty, or straight backed and pure between illness and health. And on those days, like the morning after, you know, the morning after the night before. I'd crawl out from underneath an afternoon like an asbestos eider down. Stale sweat gathered in the crevices. Bar- paranoia, a tension that was previously blissful, now snagging on my brain's hang now. And one guy, always coat ready at that point of leaving, but never going anywhere. Repeating jokes that expired hours ago to try and jump start. Good time. I remember one particular guy who was like this during a come down. He'd asked me for the 16th time if I've seen Chase and Status Live. And as another form of like emotional labor, I had to endure it because I couldn't and I can't cast aside someone straining for connection, no matter how much I don't want to engage them. I'd have these kinds of exchanges with him while battling an oncoming depression. Yeah, I think I saw Chase and Status at a festival once, I'd say. And, and he'd go, oh, fucking sick, isn't they? And i say, not really, my, not really my cup of tea, mate. And he'll go, yeah, yeah, fucking sick. Definitely the top ten of all time. Definitely. And there'd be a pause. And then he'd say, give me your digits. We should start a music podcast, bro. His breath stank. Oh, mama. Basil Bernstein made a cogent criticism, writes Mary Douglas in Purity and Danger. Some areas of one's life are kept clean and tidy, but in others, a lot of mess is happily tolerated. And Basil Bernstein, I think he was, yeah, he was, he, he was an artist. His studio is chaotic. He sleeps there, he eats there, urinates in the hand basin or out of the window when his passion for his work gives him no time to go to the WC. Dirty, debased, and grotesque corporeality, corporeality, corporeal, corporeality, corporeality, the biological spillage of illness or aging. Having worked in care home, in taking drugs in toilets, both public and domestic, whoop, hat tip, and been at the mercy of cystic acne and a tormented bowel slash ilium. I've been fascinated by this for a long time. Why is something so essential, so universal, so relatable as our body and its secretions, as the hot mess of our somatic selves pushed to the sidelines of polite discourse? Why? 
Reminds us of mortality, I suppose. But Mikhail Bafkin in the seminal work, Rabelais his world, one of my favourites, argues that you can ennoble the body's lower stratum, your piss, your shit, or even just the material reality of the entire body. So it becomes tinged with poesy or elevated to a sanctified position. I've misattributed that to James Joyce, but I think I read someone use that quote while referring to James Joyce. So... The centre of the world is transferred into the depths, the underground world, the new elements, the riches hidden in the underground are superior to all that is in heaven, on the surface of earth, or in the seas and the rivers. True wealth and abundance are not on the highest or the medium level, but only the lowest stratum. In Book 5, Chapter 48 of Gargantua and Pantagruel, where Rabelais writes, the most wonderful things are hidden underground. He also uses a phrase found, his Herme, found in Hermes Trismegistus. The sphere whose centre is everywhere, whose circumference is nowhere, which is a very Quaker way of thinking. So Bafkin wrote regarding the decentralisation of the universe, his centre was not in heaven, but everywhere. All places were equal. This new aspect permitted the author to transfer the relative centre of the universe from heaven to the underground, that is, to the underworld, which, according to the medieval conception, was farthest removed from God. By placing the core of the universe in the lower stratum, in the shit, in the arsehole, Rabelais had democratised whatever heaven is supposed to represent. Many Quakers today believe that God is imminent in all forms of human expression, writes Nancy Jiwon Chow in the Cambridge, Cambridge Companion of Quakerism. This innate godliness is, is an important part of my belief system and in a roundabout way I think is connected to my acceptance of, in the words of Bathkin, the mighty thrust downward into the bowels of the earth, into the depths of the human body, an intestinal link to all other human beings. Wait, there's a god in my shit. But alongside this, this, this shit and piss, what they represent, they also represent a more compelling and layered phenomenon. The aforementioned ennui, emptiness, emptied of bodily fluids, but also drained of any life-enhancing qualities. All the motivation, or the motivation to even climb down the stairs, use the bathroom, climb up the stairs, climb the stairs, use the bathroom, risk socialising with oven chips, who was another one of my housemates I lived with, who had severe mental illness and had a panic attack over oven chips. A deep encounter with nothingness. And during those itchy mornings, those drug binges, those awful drug binges, amongst the liquefied, liquefied Greek chorus of the cuddle puddle and the guy banging on about chase and status, I remember thinking this must be what dementia feels like. People you don't properly recognise talking at you, while the rest of the bodies in the room seem unreasonably tranquil and refuse to acknowledge you if you speak. You're in a different wavelength to everyone else. Why is no one else panicking? So yeah, they're, they're, that's, that's if you want to get a sort of a, a simulation of what dementia's like, uh, chuckle your powder into a bowl and snort indiscriminately from it at a house party. I'm feeling insane for days. Feel insane for days. I went on. I'll end on a last uh, little bit here. Uh, 
leadership as emotional and compassionate labor managing the human side of enterprise oh you know where that's going to come from yeah this is not going to be this is not going to be a proper philosophy this this is going to be a um actually it might be actually it might be a way of instilling a moral code into leadership which is always good leadership is about the ongoing process of building and sustaining their relationship of influence so yeah that's what i don't like so a relationship of influence so influence usually means that you're seeing other people if you want to influence people it, it basically means you want to manipulate people and if you want to manipulate people it means you're using them as a means to an end which is what sociopaths do what can you extract extract from this relationship rather than enjoying the relationship in and of itself you're making it transactional which i had to recently apologize to a really well-known comedian that I, I don't know that well but she was very kind about my episode of the comcom podcast and invited me to do her her uh, online show and then i kind of asked like oh you know can you can you do a, a cover quote for the book and stuff and yeah I, I sent an email saying she but she followed me on twitter and then she unfollowed me and and i get completely understand why i said i'm very sorry like for in making it transactional um like massively inappropriate and it's uh i'm sure like a lot of people decide to use her you know her her profile as a means to an end which is 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 really bad i'm so i just felt really guilty so i i usually try and avoid doing stuff like that but yeah she she appreciated the email and the apology and stuff um so i don't think sustaining a relationship with influence between those who aspire to lead and those willing to follow. Don't like that kind of terminology either. Leadership can arouse passion and emotion of extraordinary power. Again, power. Power should be shared. It shouldn't be concentrated. Even the study of leadership stirs feelings between lead because leadership is so central to our identity, beliefs and values. A complex, ineffable process that involves our self-image, primal needs for security, and moral codes. The leading news stories on any given day are often about leadership, reflecting collect- collective yearnings for more leaders, better leaders, to resolve the crisis, dilemmas, and complexities of modern life. Why can't we all be... What do you think mutual aid and stuff is? Why do you think these examples are very localised collectivization? You usually work really, really well. I don't think you can do it on a national scale. Too many moving parts, very, very hard to uh, to, to, to to orchestrate. But if 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 every if there's like loads and loads of uh, localized efforts to collectivize and different things, I think that and how they can, you know, m- mutually benefit each other. These little. Um, these little kind of pods of activity or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's, so there is a term for it. 
can't remember it's set nah, no i can't think of the word it's it's, ba- it's basically an anarchist perspective isn't it people think anarchism is all about destruction um which it isn't the assumption uh the assumption that is that good leaders make a difference and that we are better off because of what they do while there is widespread agreement that leadership is important and that effective leadership is vital there is a less clarity about what that means for some leadership is synonymous with good management for others it centers on persuasive abilities no way persuasion is manipulation some see leadership as fostering opportunities others are solving problems some understand leadership as a social phenomenon many are quick to equate it with a single heroic figure but leadership is complex interpersonal work at the boundaries of human learning adaptation and growth for leader and followers so managing the human side of leadership is multi-dimensional in skill and orientation. Successful leaders need to understand and attend to individuals and groups. Task and process, present and past, self and others, sign and symbol, appearance and reality. Such work demands strong emotional intelligence, abilities to understand and manage one's own emotions and to assess and influence those of others. I've, there's been a few occasions I've been a leader. I was chosen to be head of year uh, in year eight, didn't turn up to any of the meetings. The one meeting I did go to, I proposed that we have a condom machine in the the, the, uh, the toilets, even though I couldn't even couldn't even spaff my own beans in. Massive over 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 compensation. My way of overly compensating for my lack of uh, my lack of a, a coming, my lack of coming, and. He had cunning, but not coming. He couldn't come, but he could come. <laughs> and um, the other time is I set up my own uh, forum for my school, which ended up getting a lot of traction. A lot of people started signing on and using it. And then I became a tyrant and like was like shutting down threads. And, and it's going like, this ain't fucking tis was. We ain't playing games here, boy. This is for, for real discussion. Get down, dismantle that thread. Dismantle that one. And then I hired some administrators to, to, to gatekeep. And you fucking take that down, Adam Keppel. You take that down, Adam Keppel. You bitch. Then my best friend, Louis, said, you've become a tyrant. So I encouraged everyone to leave. Everyone left. And then there was this kind of like pre-lapsarian forum that was just me talking to me, starting threads where I would communicate myself to make it seem like it was still active, but it wasn't. They were both just me. Just scorched earth, a new start. And that new start was depressing because it, was just me and the other occasion when it was just me was in college when i was friends with the tutors but had no other friends all through college i did three years and um yeah it was a it was a tough old time i was always pissed and listening to happy hardcore still though got the best marks at the end of the year and was one of only three people who ended up going on to university so sometimes i even then i remember looking and thinking these fucking smoking babies all around me 
These fucking smoking babies. I'm not interested in the shit these kids are interested in. Too busy just... Too busy fucking flirting and flirting and uh, posing. I'm, I'm, I've got, I've got ideas. I've got ideas. I make my own destiny. They think I'm lonely, but they do not have any idea what goes on in this brain. It's so much better than all of them. I'm that kind of kid, and I wasn't better than all of them. It's just a coping mechanism. Despite the best efforts and intentions, leaders often get lost when navigating the emotional labours of leadership. A major reason that disappointment in leaders is so widespread and stories of bad leadership so abundant. The look of uh, So they use some examples here. So Howard Schultz and Starbucks. On the day in 1987 that Howard Schultz brought a local business in Seattle called Starbucks, he held an all-employee meeting at the company's old roasting plant in Seattle. We had just three talking points. Speak from the heart, put myself in their shoes, shared a big dream with them. Schultz saw two requisites for Starbucks growth. Sustain the passion and personality upon which the company had been built. Instill in every employee a reverence for the coffee experience, the capacity to recreate the transcendental blend of craftsmanship and human connection that Schultz encountered with a gracious Italian gentleman called a barista who first brewed his ex- who brewed the first espresso in Milan in 1983, or or, or Schultz's first espresso. It must have definitely been before that. For an espresso, create a consistent, high quality experience for people, and they will reciprocate with trust and loyalty, and then profits will follow. Starbucks is an amazing success story. In the 1990s, it was opening a new store almost every day and is now the world's largest coffee house company with more than. Actually, the problem is, I think just it gets degraded, though, doesn't it? It gets degraded that that feeling of, uh, of of congeniality and like when the family's too big, how can you have, how can you maintain that that them intimate connections, and so it becomes a facsimile of uh, intimate connection, which gets absorbed into corporate jargon meaningless and when you say you love someone enough if you keep saying you love someone you 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 probably don't and the more you say it the more you're trying to crystallize that idea that really remains quite elusive truly 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 loved my last girlfriend she had other ideas she was on a different wavelength to me. She uh, did, 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 did not, not love me, clearly. So, yeah, we need better leaders. We've got a leader, Boris Johnson, not my leader, but, you know, he, he does hold the reins to, uh, to, to the country. Mad and totally unethical. That's Dominic Cummings' assessment which is probably quite accurate. Um, I think Boris Johnson is a supreme narcissist. Totally self-interested. 
probably should have died. <laughs> Peru would have been better off. No, I'm only joking. But you, you weigh up. You do. You weigh up. It's like cost-benefit analysis. We, you, we lose. Like, I don't want Boris Johnson to die. But, like, Trump, I actually... If he died, I, I think I don't think, I think even his kids, I think, would be better off. I, I, and I think there would be a small sense of relief for a lot of people. Uh, so the, 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 the good outweighs the bad so completely that it's almost like you know, I would feel glee if he died. And there's not many people I can say that about. Uh, anyway, so yeah, this was going to be a, a tag, tag on to the previous episode, but it's turned into a thing in and of itself. So I hope you enjoyed it. A little bit of extra content there. Love you all. Bye.